is the Mahabharata Podcast, Episode 83, Daksha's Sacrifice. Last episode was pretty rough. According to all the rules of storytelling in ancient fables, the good guys are supposed to vanquish their enemies and then live happily ever after. But our story defies all the conventions. Instead, the war seems to have shattered all the bonds that held society together. And while the defeated enemy walk off stage to enjoy paradise, our heroes are left to deal with the mess that has been left over. As in so many civil wars of our time, the survivors on both sides nurse enough grudges to keep them killing their enemies until there's no one left alive. We've nearly reached that point in the story. Of the Karava combatants, only Kripa, Kritavarman, and Ashvataman still live, while the Pandava side was just exterminated by Drona's son in his lust for vengeance. Only the five brothers, Krishna and Setyaki, survived the massacre. I find it fascinating that in many ways it was Krishna who opened the doors to Ashvataman's wicked blood oath. Before Krishna and his tricks, there were solid rules in warfare. There were certain things you just didn't do, such as striking an unarmed man, or using ruses, or hitting below the belt. Arjun in particular recoiled at any breach in the niceties of war. But Krishna had to continually remind him that for a just cause, it was okay to use tricks, and bend or even break the rules. Although Ashvataman never cites Krishna in his own justification, he presents a strikingly similar argument. Just as Bhima was justified in striking below the belt because he had previously sworn an oath to do so, Ashvataman justified killing thousands in their sleep because he'd sworn to kill them, and knew no other way to fulfill that oath. Thus it was Krishna who got everyone going down this slippery slope, and it seems we might keep sliding until there's no one left alive. All of the Pandava's sons are now dead, as is also the entire legitimate line from Dhritarashtra. Thus, it appears the main outcome of the conflict is that the Kuru dynasty succeeded in bringing about its own extinction. So even if the Pandavas were justified in their fight, was the war worth it? What's the difference between Krishna's tricks and Ashvataman's midnight raid? Didn't they both result in the annihilation of the old order? I guess that's why we needed the story of the partial incarnations. Because if we're going to make any sense out of this horrific slaughter, it must be that the slaughter was indeed the whole point of the exercise. There were demonic spirits incarnated even among the Pandava's allies, and Mother Earth needed to be saved from all of them, regardless of which side of the battle they took. Thus, in the big picture, Shiva and Ashvataman are just as much instruments of fate as Arjuna or Bhima. Of course, fate's most crucial instrument for this story is the Pandava's corporate wife, Draupadi. It was her steely determination that impelled her husbands to pursue this war, and also to see it through to the end. She will continue to drive the story forward when she finds out what happened to her sons. We left off last time following the surviving Karvas as they slaughtered all that remained of the Pandava's sons and allies. By dawn of the next day, day 20 since the war started... By dawn of the next day, day 20 since the war started by my calculations... They returned to Duryodhana, where they found him still alive. He lived long enough to hear the news of the massacre, and then he died with a smile on his face. The scene then shifts to the Pandavas, who had spent the night sleeping on a riverbank. It looks like Setyaki had been with them as well, which is why he survived the massacre, or at least failed to prevent it. The six of them were woken that morning by Dristid Yumna's charioteer, who had somehow managed to escape the massacre. When he announced to them the death of their sons, allies, friends, and kin, Yudhishthira literally collapsed in his sorrow. He lamented, Alas, having defeated our enemies, we are now defeated. Who can make sense of any of this? 
We carried out our dharma and killed so many enemies, only to be decimated in turn by them. Victory looks like defeat, and defeat looks like victory. It was for our son's sake that we incurred the sin of killing our kinsmen, and now they too have been killed. What was the point in all of this? My friends and allies had survived Bhishma, Drona, Karna, and Shalya, all to be killed ignominiously in their time of triumph. And now we must break the news to Draupadi. When they had recovered somewhat, Naku was dispatched to Upaplavia to retrieve the queen, while the others went to camp to survey the damage. There they saw their sons and in-laws all dead and chopped up, along with their entire vast army all in ruins. Again the brothers collapsed in their sorrow and could not be roused for some time. The brothers had recovered somewhat by the time their wife arrived. Draupadi had already heard the news, and she ran to Bhima for comfort. First, with a tone of bitterness, she congratulated Yudhishthira for his great victory, but she moved quickly on to the subject of revenge. She said, Hearing of the slaughter of those sleeping heroes burns me like a fire. If Drona's son is not made to pay for this, then I shall sit here until I die. With that, the queen sat down in a yoga posture, determined to neither eat nor drink until her vengeance was sated. She said, I have heard that Ashwatthaman was born with a diadem on his head. Bring that to me, and only then shall I make an effort to continue living. Perhaps as a rebuke to Yudhishthira, she spoke to Bhim directly, saying, There is no one as tough as you, so promise me you will slay that wicked son of Drona. Of course, Bhima could never turn down a request from his main squeeze. So making Nakul his driver, he loaded up the chariot and prepared for war. Using his hunting skills, he found his enemy's tracks and set off on his trail. Krishna only arrived after Bhima had departed, and when he found out he'd gone in search of Drona's son, he was shocked. He said, Don't you guys realize what Ashwatthaman is capable of? He has mastered the Brahmashra. Bhim doesn't have any defenses against that. I had to look this up elsewhere, but what I found out is that so far, the most powerful weapon we've seen is called the Brahmastra, which I've been calling the Brahma weapon. If the Brahmastra is like an atom bomb, then the Brahmashra is like an H-bomb, hundreds of thousands of times more powerful. Krishna said he found this out back when he was living in Dvarka. Ashvataman had shown up one day with a big grin and told Krishna that he had acquired this super bomb from his father. Drona's cocky son offered to trade it in exchange for Krishna's Sudarshana Chakra. Krishna had his magic disc sitting there on the shelf, so he offered it to Ashvataman, saying, There it is, go ahead and take it. But Ashvataman, try as he might, could not even make it budge. It was just too heavy for him. Krishna said that he then scolded Ashvataman, saying, You know, even my best friend Arjun, who fought Shiva to a draw, never asked me for my weapons. Nor did my son Pradyumna, nor my brother Balram ever consider doing such a thing. Unabashed, Ashvataman even confessed that had he gotten the chakra, he would have used it to defeat Krishna and make himself master of the universe. Krishna concluded, saying, He is wrathful, restless, and cruel. He is master of the Brahmashra, so you better make sure Bhima is protected from that. After hearing this warning, Arjun, Yudhishthira, and Krishna all piled onto a single chariot and set off after Bhima. Since Bhima wasn't one to try covering his tracks, they soon caught up with him, and together they pursued Drona's son. Eventually, the trackers came up to the banks of the Ganga River, where they saw a gaggle of rishis including Vyasa, and sitting with them was Ashvataman. As soon as he laid eyes on him, Bhima drew an arrow to his bow and said, Freeze! Ashvataman did not hesitate. He grabbed a blade of grass and charged it up with his Brahmashura weapon. 
directing it to destroy the Pandavas, he launched the missile. As he did this, Krishna nudged Arjun, who knew what to do. Jumping down, bow in hand, Arjun charged up his arrow with the same weapon, but as a countermeasure. It says that he wished the best for both Drona's son and for themselves, and then fired his own weapon, directing it to neutralize Ashvataman's attack. As these missiles flew, the earth shook and the sky seemed to totter from its position. The two great rishis, Narada and Vyasa, then intervened. Themselves invulnerable to any force, they held the two missiles in place and said, You know, several of your generals had also this ability, but they chose to die rather than destroy the whole universe. What are you guys doing here? Obediently, Arjun withdrew and defused his own missile, but he protested, I only launched this to neutralize the other. I trust you guys can handle this, otherwise we'll all be killed. It says that while summoning the Brahmashra is difficult, withdrawing it is much, much harder. Only Indra and Arjun really had that level of skill. Arjun only had that ability because he kept himself pure and without sin. Ashvataman could hardly say the same, so he was unable to stop his missile, now that it was in flight. He complained, I only fired it because Bhima cheated and killed my friend. Those Pandavas are bad guys, and I only wanted to kill them, that's all. Vyasa said, My child, Arjun is patient and honest and true to his dharma. Why would you want to kill such a good man along with his brothers? Don't you know that when this weapon is used, everything dies and rain won't fall for twelve years? The Pandavas only seek peace, so why don't you withdraw your attack, hand over your diadem, and the Pandavas will let you go in peace. Ashvataman said, I'd like to help you, but you must realize that my gem is very valuable. Whoever wears it loses all fear of anyone and is immune to all disease. As for the missile, I couldn't withdraw it if I wanted to, but I'll do this. I'll direct it at the wombs of their women instead. If you recall, back at Upaplavya, Arjun's son Abhimanyu had married Virata's daughter Uttara. While Abhimanyu and all his half-brothers had been killed, Uttara was pregnant with Arjun's grandson. Thus, Ashvataman's weapon would make the other women sterile and would kill Uttara's unborn son. There was a problem, however, in that Krishna had already promised that girl a son. Ashvataman said, Sorry, Krishna, but it looks like your promise will go unfulfilled. Krishna said, It's okay, go ahead and kill him. I'll just revive him. He shall be called Parikshit, and he shall be king for sixty years. But as for you, slayer of children, you shall bear the consequences of that sin. For three thousand years you shall wander the earth alone and afflicted with every disease and illness. Stinking of blood and pus, you shall be an outcast and shall live in the marshes and jungles. Meanwhile, your victim, Parikshit, shall be a great and learned king and shall live a full life. Ashvataman accepted his punishment, and, handing over his diadem, he walked off into the woods to live out his sentence. The brothers then loaded up the gem, Vyasa, Narada, and Krishna into their chariot, and returned to where they had left Draupadi, still doing her penance. As they pulled up, Bhima alighted and presented the gem to Draupadi, saying, This gem is now yours. The man who killed your sons has been vanquished. So rise now and resume your dharma as a Kshatriya lady. And remember, when Krishna set off on his peace mission to the Karavas, it was you who told him, I have no husbands, I have no sons, and you are dead to me if you pursue peace. Bhima went on, So now you've gotten your wish. The wretch Duryodhana has been slain, and I have drunk Dushasan's blood. No one can criticize us now. As for Ashvataman, we set him free out of respect for his caste. 
but his reputation is destroyed and we have taken his gem. He is now impotent. Draupadi said, All I wanted was to pay back those who injured us. Now let the king wear this gem on his head. Our narrator says that the king took the gem and placed it on his head. He looked beautiful, like a mountain with the moon rising above it. As for Draupadi, though stricken with grief over the death of her sons, she gave up her vow and resumed her role as a Kshatriya queen. Now, finally having a moment to reflect, Yudhishthira wanted Krishna to tell him how it was possible that both his sons and allies were unable to defend themselves against a single opponent. Krishna said, The truth is that Drona's son supplicated the highest of the gods, the eternal Mahadeva. And if you can manage to gratify this greatest of the gods, anything can be accomplished. This universe acts and moves through his energy. Krishna then proceeded to tell the story of Daksha's sacrifice. This is a rather famous story, but the version most people are familiar with, I believe, comes from the Vishnu Purana. As with all the Puranas, this is considered to have been written much later than the Mahabharata. So what we get from Krishna is most likely the very earliest version of this story anywhere. For the more well-known version of this story, see the Vedic Mythology, Music, and Mantras podcast by Ben Collins. He has a great podcasting voice, by the way. The version presented here is much more oblique, but I'll let you judge for yourself. Krishna said that when Brahma wanted to create the physical universe, he asked Shiva to do it for him and to be quick about it. Shiva agreed and dove into the primordial sea to work on it. Brahma waited a long time, but never heard back from Shiva, so he decided to take matters into his own hands. He created a creator of his own, who is unnamed, but maybe Aditi, who is Daksha's father. This unnamed creator was also directed to create the world, but he hesitated, knowing that Shiva had already been assigned the same task. Brahma said, You are the firstborn. Shiva went for a swim, so don't worry about him and get going. So this new creator first created Daksha, and then created the four kinds of creatures. But as soon as they were created, they came back to him all hungry and wanting to devour him. This frightened him, so he ran back to Brahma for help. Brahma knew what to do. He created plants for all the critters to eat, and they all went home satisfied. That worked out pretty well, and the various animals began breeding and multiplying. But then Shiva finally emerged and saw that he'd been preempted, and he got really angry. As a result, he sat down and buried his penis in the earth. Brahma tried to calm him down, saying, What took you so long at the bottom of the sea? And why did you bury your John Thomas? Shiva replied angrily, You let someone else do all the creation, so what's the point of having a knob if I can't use it? Shiva then stormed off to the mountains to practice austerities. The story then jumps forward to the end of the Krita Yuga, or Golden Age. Krishna says that at the end of that age, the gods prepared a Vedic sacrifice. They gathered all the necessary ingredients and planned out who should get what share. I guess because Shiva was off in the mountains, the celestials neglected to take him into account and did not allocate a share for him. When Shiva found out what they were up to, he again blew his top. He manifested a bow composed of the four kinds of sacrifices, and the string of his bow was formed from the mantra of Vashat. Taking the form of a brahmacharya, Shiva took his bow to disrupt the sacrifice. At the sight of his approach, the earth goddess shrank with fear and the mountains trembled. The wind ceased to blow and the fire, although well-fueled, would not burn. The stars in the sky began to wander in irregular directions. The sun and moon both dimmed and the sky grew dark. 
The conductors of the sacrifice were confounded as their sacrifice seemed to be going to pieces. They became terrified. Shiva then fired an arrow into the heart of the sacrifice, and the sacrifice, taking the form of a deer, raced away along with the fire god. As the deer soared through the sky, it blazed forth in beauty. With the departure of the sacrifice, the gods lost all their vitality and were stupefied. Then Shiva returned and angrily broke Savitri's arms, plucked out the eyes of the Aditya Bhaga, and knocked out the teeth of the solar deity Pushana. Then, with their right all in disarray, the gods tried to flee, but, deprived of their powers, they just fell to the ground like dying birds. It says that, at the sight of the fallen gods, the rishis uttered a cry, and the string of Shiva's bow snapped. Freed of tension, the bow then stretched into a straight line. Then, all the gods and rishis threw themselves at Shiva's feet. Shiva was gratified by their supplication and threw his wrath into the sea, where it took the form of a fire. It says this fire is always employed in consuming the element of water. Shiva then gave Savitri his arms, Bhaga his eyes, and Pushana his teeth, and he restored the sacrifice. Now that Shiva was properly propitiated, the world once again became calm and stable. Having learned from their mistake, the celestials assigned to Shiva the offering of ghee in the fire in Vedic sacrifices. Krishna said that when Shiva Mahadeva gets angry, the whole world becomes agitated, and when Mahadeva is content, the whole world becomes safe again. Krishna then explained that Ashvataman was only able to vanquish the sleepers because he had gratified Shiva. He concluded with the advice, Therefore, you should not let your mind dwell on what has happened. It wasn't Drona's son who did that to you. It was only done through the grace of Mahadeva. So now let's move on. This ends the Saptika Parva, which is the rather short 10th book of the Mahabharata. This is also a good stopping point, so we'll end it here for now. But before we go, I'd like to thank all of you who have stuck it out and made it this far, and especially all of you who have left comments on my blog. I really appreciate your words of encouragement, and I've learned a lot from many of your comments. Now, some of you may be wondering how much of the story is left to go. By looking at where we are in my favorite abridgment of the epic, which is by Krishna Dharma, presumably a pen name, we're roughly through 90% of the story. But in terms of books or parvas, we're only at book 11 out of 18. In terms of raw text, however, I have a harder time judging because I do not own a physical copy of the unabridged epic. But I do have a complete copy of Ganguly's translation in my Kindle. And it says we're only 62% through this translation. This means somehow we're 92% of the way through the story, but we're barely more than halfway through the text. If you're curious what can possibly fill so many pages from here to the end of the book, well, so am I. I know a lot of it consists of Bhishma's teaching on Dharma, which I intend to skim over at a high level. But as for the rest of it, we'll have to find out together. I plan to push on with this podcast to the very end of the epic. So I hope you'll join me on this final leg of our journey through the world's longest epic. Thanks for listening.